Welcome to Studio Stories, a podcast that spotlights the people behind some of New Zealand's best-known albums and the stories behind their creation. We take you into the studio and hear from artists, producers and engineers who talk inspiration, frustration, elation and the power of the musical creative process. I'm Dean Young and in this episode... They were seven Auckland teens, bottle-fed on the blues, funk and hip-hop, who would go on to craft one of the most acclaimed New Zealand albums ever. Supergroove's debut album upon its release in 1994 would ship platinum and landed at number one on the national album charts, holding on to the top spot for over a month. The album remained in the top 15 for over three months, and has now sold well over five times platinum. Now, almost 30 years since its release, these are the studio stories of Supergroove's Traction. Hi, this is Carl from Supergroove. I did some of the singing in Supergroove and uh, co-produced the albums and recordings. Well, I guess we started out in high school and a lot of us went to the same high school, not all of us. It was between Seddon High School, as it was called then, and Selwyn High School or Selwyn College, and, and also the drummer came from Linfield College. Uh, but uh, but most of us were at Seddon, um, and um, it was kind of the music nerds. So we were mainly, I think all of us were involved with the Seddon Orchestra, uh, and that uh, is where at least... A lot of us met. Uh, hi, I'm Tim Stewart. Um, I uh, am the trumpet player in Supergroup. Uh, it was me, Carl and Nick. Um, and yeah, we just played blues, really. Very, very, very basic. I mean, we didn't even stomp a clap, you know what I'm saying? Like, there was zero rhythm component to that outfit. I mean, well, apart from the fact that we were doing rhythmic riffs, but yeah, I mean, you know. There was something lacking, shall we say. <laughs> and then we sort of started work going further afield to find a drummer, which was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and so we would just borrow the drummers of whatever bands we were playing with. Uh, and then finally the drummer from Blues Brothers said, look, I'm too old to be drumming for you guys. You're all children and I'm an adult. So uh, why don't you have my best drum student who's at Linfield College? And we'd never even heard of Linfield College. And, uh, yeah, but Paul Russell um, was that drummer. And, yeah, he came over and, quote-unquote, auditioned and totally blew our minds. And, yeah, and so that was basically the final piece of the puzzle and then we're all together. Carl was it was very much Carl was like, this is real. This is This is legit. Don't say you're into it if you're going to piss around. This is not to be cool. You know, you will not pull girls. Nothing about this is going to provide any of those things that you think are wrong. You know, like, we basically, we don't have time for that. We don't even know what it is. We're 13, 14. We know nothing about that stuff. All, all, all I know is you have to put hours of work into this. <laughs> 
And that was kind of really all we would do, you know, it was just like, rest, listen to music, sit around, listen to music, talk about it, write stuff, play, you know. So it was really not, uh, it's very serious. <laughs> it's very serious. There was just, that's what I mean, I just can't stress enough, there was nothing cool about it, like, for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're on TV, and it still wasn't cool. It took us a lot of months in the practice room before we had anything worth sharing with anyone. Uh, So it was a very long process of learning our instruments, learning to play with each other. We didn't know anything about, you know, brass instruments are transposed, so a C on a trumpet's not the same as a C on an alto sax, isn't the same as a C on a harmonica. That was like a brutal shock to us when we first played. It was like, oh, my God, the trumpet's broken. And Joe was playing fretless bass and um, Ned Ngatai, the first guitarist, was playing acoustic guitar that was being amped through his father's stereo and, you know, like it was totally raw. Um, so we had to learn all of the that and, and develop our craft, I suppose, to a point where we could play live. And then we gradually started improving that as well and, and developing an audience. Our manager, Stuart, we, he used to put a thing on every Friday night. So he did a lot of shows and he'd, he'd actually built up a bit of a local scene in this, in this bar. This was sort of post when we were doing the blues stuff. Now we were like a funk band and we were called Supergroup. So he kind of worked that quite hard. And, and it was once we started to get a following live that the record companies first um, were convinced to do a distribution deal. But it was a pretty marginal licensing deal, I think, on the first single. Um, here comes the supergroup. Um, and I think they were pretty surprised that it did well. And, you know, we would fill the power station with teenagers. BMG came to a gig and, and were like, uh, look at all these happy punters. They said, look, if you want to get into the studio and make your album and have us pay for the tape and so on, we need you to be signed as artists. So that, that whole process took about, oh, it must have been at least five years. We went into York Street Studios where we recorded the album and we actually recorded all our songs we had uh, live to that. Then we could all listen to what we had and that was a bit of a rude awakening. Um, We had tons of songs, but a lot of them were really bad. A lot of these songs had been through four or five different versions. Started out as a song about burgers and wound up being, you know, about something a little bit more substantial. Um, We always have funny conversations trying to, you know, reminding each other of some other weird version that we don't remember. When it got to that pre-production time, that's when it all got tied down. The embarrassing stuff had got rooted out and replaced. Our songs sort of came in three waves, I suppose. The first wave of original songwriting was kind of very funk and soul influenced. The second wave was we started getting into rap. And then when we started playing live with our sort of rappy, solely funky stuff, 
uh, we were playing with a lot of punkier bands and we were playing with a lot of bands that were influenced by Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so then we started getting more distortion and it felt powerful on stage too. It felt strong, that sort of the heavier music. Um, vaguely around the outskirts of when She Hard were recording and and I mastered that Churn album and, and uh, with Malcolm and... Uh, so I was listening to them a lot and I was listening to some of the music that I s- heard them listening to in the studio. Yeah, Carl's right about the waves, but they never, I'd say we held on to them all. Like we got into hip hop and we didn't then just like move past hip hop. We were like, okay, now we've got Booyah Tribe and Pantera. Sweet. <laughs> and James Brown. Oh, yeah. You know, Pantera was huge for us. She had would literally just left. York Street and we'd like come in and their CDs would be sitting around on the control room and we'd put them on and listen and go, oh, yeah, you know. And I remember hearing Vogue Display of Power and we were just like, we oh, we have to have that. We were just like, <gasps> let's rip this off straight away. Yeah, we had the soul stuff, the funky stuff, the rappy stuff, and then this sort of metal-influenced angsty stuff. Um but what we didn't have was any really sort of emotional stuff. And so we went away and wrote a couple of songs. Uh, so Only the Rain and For Whatever Reason were written for the album um, just to give it a bit of depth. Uh, and Sitting Inside My Head was completely reworked. And, yeah, and then we, we went into Last Laugh Studios in Vulcan Lane for – a week I think it was or 10 days and we just went through all our songs with a fine tooth comb and practiced it up so that we were really going into the studio able to just track songs really fast because it's so expensive you know what I mean like um yeah so we wanted to be super efficient and get as much out of that sort of experience and that time as we possibly could Hey, it's Malcolm Wellsford here. I'm the producer on Traction, um, Supergroove's um, first release, which shipped platinum and went to number one. You know, I was freelancing, well, before York Street, I was freelancing out of Mandrill. And then I think Carl started working there as a post-production engineer. And so uh, we kind of met that way. And, of course, you know, York Street was built across the road, so... Pretty sure it was through Glenn Tucker and, and Mandrill. And, um, yeah, we worked on a few things together, yeah. And so, anyway, Malcolm would do recordings in that studio at night. Um, and also he would come to that studio and to the dubbing room when he had recorded elsewhere and I'd do a bunch of cassettes for him, you know, uh, of all of his projects. Um, and so we got to know each other and um, and I was his assistant engineer sometimes on things, like when he did the She Had churn album yeah so we got to know each other and it was just clear that he was super passionate and uh a very very good engineer so i really hoped that he could work with us on our uh album when it came to yeah be the time for that i think back then i really wanted to just approach every album and recording differently so i I wouldn't have even even if i thought hey it sounded good Recording the say that say the drums a certain way, I, I wouldn't have applied it on purpose because I wanted all the recordings to sort of have their own sort of 
thing about them. There was a lot of very clear ideas about how we wanted stuff to sound. I mean, we would sit around and, you know, listen to tracks just because we liked a kick drum or, or, you know, a guitar sound or a bass sound or, you know, that kind of thing. We as a band were very clear about how we did and didn't want things to sound. Um, and I was definitely, you know, one of those opinionated people in the band, you know, um, and we liked the sound of Malcolm's stuff, but also it wasn't like Malcolm listened to the music that we listened to, you know what I mean? We were listening to tons of rap music and sample-based music uh, and lots of old funk and stuff, um, and that wasn't Malcolm's bag. Malcolm wasn't there when we were sitting around at 11.30 at night listening to Booyah Tribe talking about how amazing that kick drum sound was. You know, he didn't. He hadn't spent that time, you know, uh, in sharing this deep kind of love we had of all this music that we were trying to emulate. So, so Carl had to fight our corner, you know. And so we were like, no reverb, you know, on anything. We want these dry guitar sounds. We don't want it to sound like an alternative album in that way. And we recorded the drums up in a different part of the studio where they'd never recorded drums before. Uh, And we built, we took all the couches uh, and built a sort of a ISO booth around our guitar amps so that they could sound dead and sort of like the samples and stuff that we we liked. So so I guess it was a it was a logical thing that Malcolm, who was such a great engineer, would be doing the sort of granular details of things, but that someone from the band would be representing us for the kind of general aesthetic. He was engineer slash producer. I mean obviously Malcolm had way more experience. But Carl had done his time as a hands-on engineer at Mandrill and, and uh, he is a, is a sponge, you know, sort of absorbed a lot of stuff. And Carl was also very aware that as a young guy, I think I'm just literally projecting this, but we talked about it a fair bit. But, you know, like this was a man's world, right? And we're a bunch of kids. And at any second, someone was going to come in and yank this out of our hands and turn it into, frankly, a piece of shit if we, if we, if we didn't fight like tooth and nail for what we thought was good. You know, I'd say at times it was like reasonably tense. Um, but, again, that's only because we wanted the best for the project, you know. Um, and I guess I was probably pretty full on too, <laughs> you know. I would say there was you know, some antagonism between the two of them. Um, but, you know, that that was good. That was a good thing in the long run. Um, it, it, you know, all, all of the stuff we made as a band was born out of tension. <laughs> you know, um, we, we, we are a band, yeah, we're a band that operates well in that kind of uh, in, in, in environment. We are not an easygoing bunch of dudes who like to jam i guess i was the sort of conduit for uh the band's opinion you know what i mean like it was definitely me working with malcolm malcolm would be working away following his ears following his skills and his intuitions and he wasn't always that communicative about what he'd done uh, unless he thought it was particularly cool but with a 
studio control room, the nice thing is if you know how it works, you can walk in there and you can see what the person's done. I could just wander around and have a look. And if I disagreed with something, I could both hear it and see what it was that um, had been done that I didn't like. Uh, And then we could discuss it. And um, yeah, he was very open with that. Oh, yeah, it was. It was fantastic. And it really, that's why, you know, that's why I said it was quite fluid because I think having him there and helping out and communicating and even patching stuff in, it was just really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of live recording. Um, I mean, we'd done a little bit of mucking around with that at Mandrill when I was engineering, and and we just weren't good enough musicians was my perspective, even though we were starting to get pretty good. Um, I just felt like we needed that every part under the microscope sort of approach. So now, yeah, we had two weeks booked. I think it was two weeks. And it was very seriously regimented affair because there was a lot to lay down. When we went into the studio, I had drawn like pictures of the sort of soundscape and the stereo field and the frequencies just in it. Um, it it's less impressive than it, uh, it sounds probably. But, you know, it's like just a lump down here for the kick drum and then the bass will be, yeah. And and that was really helpful. And And I also, because I worked in a studio and I knew you know, we only had 23 tracks on a on a 24-track tape machine with one track for time code. Um, and you don't really use the end tracks anyway that much except for, for overdubs because it's uh, they fray and stuff and, yeah, can be a bit unreliable. Um, but so I, I took track splits home and worked out what we'd put on each track and where we'd have to bounce down to, you know, do sub-bounces and stuff. So, so we definitely went in the studio with a kind of a military precision of we knew all our parts, we knew, yeah, what tracks they were going to go on. We, yeah, we built that um, thing with the couches around the guitar booth and we we got Mark Pollard and from the Nixons in to tune the drums for us because we knew that we didn't know how to tune the drums and he did such a great job tuning drums. And, and so all these sorts of best practice as we could you know, aspire to it. We did all that sort of stuff. We tracked the drums, getting the big drum sound. um, And yeah, then we just focused on those. um, And then we did the same with the bass and the same with the guitar and so on and so on, building it from the ground up in layers. The thing that I bought either was... um the just just the way I mic'd a lot of the instruments and the drums and the brass and things like that, and uh, it's it's something I I learned from Bruce Swedian, you know Michael Jackson's engineer, and so it's it's putting it's putting the instrument or you know the artist in a three D space, so when they move and you can hear it. You can hear it on Michael Jackson stuff quite a lot. You know, when when the vocals are moving around, you you can hear it. You know, it's actually moving in the room. You know, so I use that technique, and it's basically to figure eight. It's called a bloom line pair, and it just gives recordings like a. And so it's all stereo, right? Stereo recording. So it gives it a gives the room mics and the horns or whatever you're trying. You know, vocals. It gives it a three D space when you're listening to it. I think we probably would have spent the first week just doing drums. It it all worked out really well because uh, good drums equals 
good record, particularly at that time, I think, and the way that record panned out. There was a lot of uh, messing around with drum sounds, getting it, getting it right. You know, I like to just do approach every recording differently. So yeah, I, I would put it, I put the drums in a different place for that reason, just to give it a different sound and uh, you know a bit more close miking. And um, I think I had this. You know, we're talking about the three D spatial thing. I think at the time I had this dummy head which had microphones in the ears and so I would put that right on the drums where where I want to put my head you know so I put my head there go oh you know I might move back a bit oh shit that's sounding great and you know I can hear the balance between the cymbals and the snare drum and the kick drum and depending on where I put my head in front of the drum kit so then then I would put the dummy head with the mics there and it's listening to what I'm listening to yeah it was about tailoring the sounds to give the feeling of a lot of energy and and tailoring the performances so that they really just sort of blazed um and and we definitely put a lot of energy into that and then then that those sort of like energizing backing tracks of the the party tracks um that's something that we learned from like disco and funk albums you got to know to understand maybe take me by my head no, it's great. I mean, these are pretty much what Carl brought brought to the table, and I think it really made a huge difference, you know. Um, and I guess maybe a couple of times ago, okay, let's let's try it. <laughs> you know? I guess I was pretty shy, so it was like I don't really want to be in it. But hey, <laughs> I think I'm on there a few times somewhere. And so we just learned how to do that in the studio. You just yeah set up some mics and and you know burn a couple of tracks of on 24 track tape of just the band making noises and yelling along and clapping and maybe playing the odd percussion instrument and that sort of thing and that became uh one of the sort of things in our tool bag for um getting some energy and some vibe across and i think joe had his parts down so cold didn't take him that long to do his bass and then when it got to guitar, there were a lot of overdubs and Don't Look Down. I listen back to it now and I'm going like, there's about four or five quite distinctly different guitar tones, you know, panned across the mix at various stages of kind of raggedness and smooth overdrive, you know. So there was a lot of energy spent on that. The horns, we had to get it all done, like, between nine in the morning and two in the afternoon on one particular day. Carl liked horns, you know, he, he, he was, he was into horns. Um, I mean, yeah, James, I mean, you know, cause James Brown was a huge part of our kind of thing when we first started out. And so the JB's the sound of Maceo Parker and Fred Wesley was big and tower of power big. And there was, there was horns on Booyah tribe. Um, that were great, really, really good. Obviously, there were a lot of great horn samples happening in hip hop time. There's a crap load of really good horns in um, uh, NWA, um, Public Enemy, you know, like tons of great, great sort of stuff. So I would say, yeah, generally we were like, we were just trying to make samples. We Everything we did was really like imagining them as samples. 
and and yeah, and used my EPS and Sonic sampler a lot too. Filtered um, hi hats and snares through the lower sample rate on that to give it a sort of a gnarly sound that was a bit bit like more like a sample. Um, and um, and reamped some stuff as well. The drums at the beginning of "You Freak Me" and the horn parts in "Your White Shirt." Um, they were generally reamped through a pig nose. Um, you know, pig nose, that crappy little harmonica amp, and through the harp amp, another harp amp um, that Carl had, um, which is on the album cover on the back of the album, but it, it was great. You know, like you can hear that tone. It's, Don't Look Down has a lot of that on there. It makes it really boxy. Yeah, so like with the kick drum, I'd put that through a bass amp and the snare through a snare amp. And I guess to try and cre- sort of create a sense of what they're trying, what they're trying to achieve, which was sort of a grunge, a bit of a grunge element maybe or, not so commercial, but also it was commercial because it was kind of a new sound as well. So, but I, I could, I think by adding that distortion and some crazy sounds like that, I think that added, helped add to what they were trying to express. I remember walking back in the control room and hearing what they'd done with the horns. And I mean, I thought that we'd done pretty good, you know, like we'd recorded our parts well, and I felt that they were generally in tune because, of course, there was no auto-tune. I mean, these days. I mean, I hate auto-tune vocals, but, man, auto-tune is awesome when it comes to brass. <laughs> Whack it on there. Um, and so it was. I was happy with the performances, and I knew they were tight as anything. And then hearing this re-amped crazy, I mean, it was just like, you made it sound like a sample, like, it was a dream come true, you know. I was, I was so stoked. You know, we'd sample every line in a film that we liked, and you know, and that was happening on the on the hip hop albums that we were listening to as well, you know. So, and and old children's records and just any random thing um, that we thought had some humor or vibe or whatever. Um, and then with the processing of samplers, we would get into, you know, really degenerating those samples sometimes. So it was more of a texture, you know, you can't hear what's being said. Like there's, there's lines and from movies and both uh, sitting inside my head and only the rain that, that you can't really, it's kind of garbled, but it just adds a bit of something. Um, yeah. Texture. Um, and so we, yeah, we were into that kind of slightly, cinematic approach joe was a very big movie nerd and um so he always had a great great suggestions with things we could sample having an abundance of platonic relationships reminiscent of my man mike plato it's warren thomas he did all the tv and z voiceovers and and because i worked at a recording studio across the road i'd recorded him a million times uh doing voiceovers yeah i i thought that that fitted really well. It was so cool. Yeah, so, you know, it was it was actually pretty handy actually having Mandrel over there as well. Uh, and so when it came to that weird line um, that we thought, oh, let's have it like the Muppets where uh, the in 
the Muppet Hospital, whatever it is, and the voiceover comes on as they're doing surgery and they all look up confused. Um, let's have it like that. Um, yeah, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny, or we thought, I don't know if it was me, uh, to have it like a yeah news announcer. And, and I thought, oh, um, I know just the person. When I remember our first experiences in the studio, I mean, literally, we were all seven of us just in the control room the whole time, having seven different opinions about every single aspect. That was when we developed our pretty brutal approach to working in the studio because it was like, this can't work. We, we're not going to get anything done at all. So then it was like, everybody out, everybody out. Um, what we're going to do is... Carl and Malcolm get to work on each track until they are happy with it. And then we open the door and we get the notes and everyone has a listen and everyone's perspective is heard and respected. But we need to get it into some sort of shape first and not build it up through discussion to the, yeah, to that point. Uh, And, you know, that did make it uh, a very kind of, harsh environment when you know this control room door just closed control room door gets shut so you know you've done your track lay and then it was just ordering dinners and watching movies and wondering what was happening behind the closed soundproof door and Malcolm and I were in there and everyone else just mills around for eight hours until we you know emerge um, like moles from beneath the ground and say okay go have a listen and then we would go in and hear some stuff, little bits and pieces, and go, wow, that's sounding amazing, you know? And then I can be like, oh, no, it's terrible. We got it. Ah. And, like, ah. and they'd be, they were fighting, well, in a good way. They were always battling it out over, over, over what they were going to do. But, but it did solve the problem of how to uh, actually get something finished. I mean, it's a symphony, you know, and it's not just – it's just not the music, it's the whole process as a, as a symphony in a way. And so my job is to take all these ideas, hey, I love it to be like this, and like take it all and put it in my head and and not and then sort of just, you know, have in the back of my mind what, what they're thinking but of, but try and just put all those ideas together so it feels like a cohesive recording and, and um, band basically. And don't look down. Paul, he really drummed the shit out of that. I mean, it's like, that's a real pleasure to listen back to it now. Um, All those double kicks. And Ian still, you know, Ian is very good on the double kicks too. It was nice to have that, that, you know, that's that Pantera thing that was kind of coming into the band. Well, Only the Rain was a challenge. Um, that was not one of the ones that was on the DAT because, like I said, that that uh, was written specifically for the album because we felt we needed something that ended the album with a bit of a emotional depth. Uh, Only the Rain was very difficult because it was so new. It wasn't a style that we'd done before, so it was really tricky for Ben, the guitarist, to work through all those chords Due to the inexperience of the songwriters, me and Joe, we put it in a really stupid key um, that made it really difficult to sing. 
um, like it was just way too high uh, a key for any singer, I think. Uh, but so when poor Shay got to sing it, for no through no fault of his, uh, it was just like, what? This is so high, this part here. And he was having to stand on a chair and like, we actually had to break the recording session and he went and got a few lessons uh, with Caitlin Smith, if I remember rightly. Uh, and we sort of reconvened in two days and we're like, okay, let's record the, <laughs> that vocal along with our overdub. So he was, it was brutal for him. Like we should have just re-recorded the song actually, you know, in a, in a proper key. I walk around this town as buildings close and windows are boarded. I think about you. Sitting inside my head has this tambourine. And that we just couldn't nail that groove of it. It was really this tricky point between swung and straight. And so in the end, we called up um, a percussionist. I, I had mixed the percussion on the Cantuta album um, and their percussionist, one of their percussionists, Miguel Fuentes, is an amazing percussionist. So I was like, well, we should phone him. And he just came and nailed it in one take. He was just like, oh, really? Okay. And we were just like, wow, how's he doing that? But yeah, uh, so that groove is largely part down to, in part down to uh, Miguel Fuentes uh, and his amazing tambourine playing. And I love you more, more, more. That, yeah, that's a foot tapping. That was, a, that was an overdub. We did that afterwards. For whatever reason. That was the only time we used the guitar live in that big room, you know. So we broke down the the couches and um, and recorded that um, with the full uh, sound reverberating around the big concrete room. And yeah, and we did a, a recording of a foot tap. And we used the live big room uh, for the bass bridge to Bugs and Critters as well so we turned it up really loud and we wanted a bit of extra texture so I wandered around the room while that was being recorded moving uh, mic stands and things around just to get the sort of yeah just little details and weird sounds and yeah so um, yeah lots of that sort of thing okay and this is uh, can't get enough full length version okay here we go but in that final stage when we were mixing down to DAT tape, by that stage all the band were in the control room and there was a lot of, well, anyone who had hung around long enough and was interested, and it was a very dynamic mix, you know. Yeah, well, of course, you know, it's all tape and no automation, so it's all hands on deck <laughs> or, in our case, all hands on faders, you know. <laughs> There's so much going on. I remember there were like, you know, we're all stretched along the desk, you know, arms here and there, you know, riding faders. That was super fun. The whole board has got, uh, mixing board's got different things on it and Malcolm's riding the master fader and making sure it doesn't get too loud um, and but that it's pushy enough. And then all the other band members, we're all riding different parts of them. So it's like you do that snare fill, you know, um, and just push it up a little bit. And, um, yeah, and so and so you do the guitars. and So everyone had their, you know, had their fingers on their guitars or bass or Joe and, you know, or whatever, you know, someone was trumpet or whatever, you know, everyone had 
had to do stuff in the mix, you know. It was a spaceship, really, to 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 us. Um, what was going on was be you know we, we had, Carl was the only one who had training. You know that this is what will need to happen with them, and you might even punch these EQs in at this point, and so it was a very collaborative and dynamic thing that was a lot of fun for all of us uh, and it's a kind of mixing that you don't get much these days because all that stuff is just automated in the box so you, you, there's no you, you could get it so perfect now that maybe it's a bit boring it was like in this room in this space full of equipment full of sound and we all have a little part to play in getting and each mix is different every time it goes down it's different because so and so did this differently and so yeah it was a really fun uh process you know and that makes the that makes for the for a piece of piece of art you know it's it's artwork you know these recordings and you know what we've done and with carl and the band you know it's a piece of art because of all those elements you know Once it got to the final stages of putting it down onto DAT, um, which those DAT machines have their own limiters built into them. Um, and so you can hit them quite hard with a lot of signal and it will just crunch up quite nicely. And, and uh, again, Dr. Dre, I know he for a long time kept on mixing from 24-track tape to DAT because of the, the gain staging you get going really hot to 24-track tape, gives its own sort of compression and distortion, and then going quite hard to DAT gives a different kind of limiting. Um, and so we experimented a lot with that sort of stuff when we went into master it. Uh, there's a, pr- there was a printer that would print out every time you had peaked too, and hit it too hard, and we would literally, we were hitting it so hard that the printer was just going the whole time. And then we would go back and we would listen and make sure that it was actually able to do it. Um, because if you, you know, if you clip a true clip in digital is it just can't actually create the sound, you know? Um, and so we didn't want that, but we wanted it as loud as it could possibly be, even if it was saying it was an error. You know, you, you, you're a lot younger, you've got a lot more energy and, um, you know, drunk a lot of coffee, you know. So, <laughs> you know, did, we did, did long hours. We worked really hard on it, you know, and uh, we came up with something that was pretty special. I really felt that we did our best to do something good and it is impressive when I listen back to it. It's like, wow, this, we actually managed to do something we, we could not have done anything better than that at that time is how I feel, you know what I mean? Like I, I feel it has faults and weaknesses and so on, but they're not in the lack of trying. Um, yeah, it's we, we could not have made a better album than that uh, as artists at that point in our lives. And I, so I feel really pleased that we put so much energy into trying to do a good job. I mean, I'm proud that we made this detailed and really unique thing um, that stood out from everything around it at the time, and I think still does. I feel that it was a really authentic effort, um, and that's really hard to pull off. That was the apex of that dynamic, of the way that those seven people were interacting. It produced 
the best art we ever could have, I think, at that moment. Our characters and our tastes and our level of discipline and our musicianship had just kind of, was that, you know, it was kind of just that magic moment where it all kind of worked out. We did what we wanted to do and it worked. Um, and it worked, yeah, amazing. <laughs> How often does that happen? Those were the studio stories from the sessions for Supergroove's debut album, Traction. With special thanks to Carl, Tim and Malcolm. Links to follow the guys on social media can be found in the show notes, along with how to buy or stream the album. Make sure to leave a five-star review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode of Studio Stories. A Russell Podcasts production. Go to rustlepodcasts.com for more information.